welcome to Modern Food Thinking. This is your host, Chef Jerome Picka, along with co-host Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong. Today's episode is titled Sugar and the Physiological Effects on Our Health. Sugar and spice is not everything nice. And this show is brought to you by Spazio Rosso Interior Design. And here we present to you our unique perspectives on food as it relates to health and wellness. Rachel, you and I recognize that sugar is a very addictive substance, and I think it's safe to say that most people think the same. I'm constantly urging my family, friends, clients, and culinary students to cut back on refined sugar and HFCs, uh, which I will come back to, but it often falls on deaf ears. Even with customers at my restaurant before the coronavirus shut down, I would try and provide alternative recommendations. And to our listeners, Rachel and I will add uh, some sugar alternative recommendations a little later in this episode. But for now, let me jump into some metadata. According to the 2015 to 2020 Dietary Guidelines for Americans, the current average consumption of refined sugar is 17 teaspoons per day which is almost double the recommended daily maximum allowance. It's so prevalent in our daily lives that people often don't realize how much sugar they are actually consuming. And it can be found in practically every processed food imaginable, including foods prepared to order, off-the-shelf grocery store products, microwavable dinner-ready entrees, sports drinks, energy bars, and RTEs or ready-to-eat foods. And as a chef, I can tell you that the easiest way to sell a restaurant or consumer food to an American palate, for example, is to make it a bit sweet. And I realize how subversive this is, but it is an accurate reality of the food industry. Jerome, I couldn't agree more. I also find myself urging clients to reduce their sugar intake. And you know what? Initially, they agree. They think about cutting out cookies and candies and baked goods. That's pretty easy for people to wrap their heads around. But when we really dive into it, I ask my clients to start reading labels. And before they know it, their mayonnaise has sugar in it. Their bacon has sugar in it. Tomato sauce, salsa. I mean, I could go on, but it really seems like it's everywhere. Now, I want to share a study titled, and I love this title, Intense Sweetness Surpasses Cocaine Reward. Now, this study was originally done at the University of Bordeaux in France and then replicated at the James Cook University in Australia. So let me explain. These researchers found that when rats were allowed to choose mutually exclusively between water sweetened with saccharin, which is an intense calorie-free sweetener, and intravenous cocaine, which is a highly addictive and harmful substance, the large majority of the animals, and I'm talking 94% of the rats in this study, preferred the sweet taste of saccharin over cocaine. They checked this again using sucrose, which is a natural sugar to see if the preference for saccharin was um, due to its unnatural ability to induce sweetness without calories, but the findings were actually the same. So what am I saying here? That there is research showing that sugar is incredibly addictive, even more so than cocaine. And that should cause all of our listeners to really take a pause and let that sink in for a minute. So Rachel, that's a great point. And there's a, there was a study published in 2009 on evidence for sugar addiction, uh, subtitled Behavioral and Neurochemical Effects of intermittent excessive sugar intake. 
And this study showed that even intermittent access to sugar can lead to behavioral and neurochemical changes that resemble substance abuse. Uh, so this goes right to the point that you're making, Rachel. And for our listeners, you can find the source material for this in the neuroscience and behavioral reviews available through the Department of Psychology at Princeton University. Uh, the study also used rats as the study medium, and the results supported both the Bordeaux study you cite, Rachel, as well as many other lab control studies over a period of 13 years. And going back to your earlier point, Rachel, regarding advice to your clients, I've seen the same thing in decades of work in the culinary and food nutrition health field. The addictive properties of refined sugar, and I emphasize refined sugar intentionally, cannot be understated. I think it is extremely important for our listeners to understand the difference between the various classes of this compound that we generally refer to as sugar. And what I'm referring to is sucrose, fructose, and glucose. We'll get into the science of this in a moment, but understand that each of these classes of sugar are metabolized differently in our bodies. Ah, uh, yes, it is so important to distinguish different types of sugars because they are not all created the same. I'll let you dive into the science, but first I want to add for our listeners all the sneaky names sugar can have, uh, including some sciencey names, some natural sugars, some artificial sweeteners, and some sugar alcohols. So bear with me as I go through this list, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce them all correctly. We've got dextrose, disaturide, lactose, maltose, molasses, agave nectar, monk fruit, cane juice, aspartame, sucralose, stevia, splenda, truvia, mannitol, sorbitol. And this is just the tip of the iceberg for all the different names we have out there for sugar and all the different ways manufacturers can sneak it into what we are consuming. Now, Jerome, I'll hand it back to you for the science of what all these different sugars mean for us. Well, I'll say, Rachel, this is a great list. And the common denominator here is that most of these sugars are what we know as simple sugars. Uh, they are also classified as carbohydrates because they are needed by the body for energy. Each sugar molecule is attached to one, two, or three extra carbon atoms to create monosaccharides, disaccharides, or polysaccharides. And just a side note here on the chemical properties of these complex carbohydrates, they do not come in the form of carbon chains longer than three molecules. So getting back to the sugar carbohydrate molecular chain, a monosaccharide can be found in all whole fruits and vegetables and are most easily broken down into usable energy. Disaccharides are formed when two monosaccharides link together, and they are found as common table sugar. This is the sugar we are advocating avoiding or eliminating entirely. Then we have lactose and maltose. Lactose is known as a milk sugar and is found in all animal-based dairy products, as well as foods you might be very surprised to learn about, such as processed deli meats, certain prescription and over-the-counter medications, commercial salad dressings, and highly processed foods such as instant uh, coffee, pancake mix, energy bars, cookies, crackers, and breads. And Rachel, this goes straight to the heart of what you said about the hidden names on ingredient labels on processed foods, because many of those ingredients are listed right on the packaging. Now, maltose is often found in alcoholic and carbonated beverages, as well as fast food burgers, commercially uh, prepared uh, fruit pies, 
which is the kind that can be found most grocery store shelves, sugary breakfast cereals, bagels, and even pizza. And getting back to an earlier point on simple sugars, I want to clarify that only mono and disaccharides are considered simple because our bodies can easily break down the molecular chains into usable energy forms. Our bodies definitely need to consume carbohydrates, which is an important consideration when people talk about cutting back on carbs. And this is an area where many people tend to get confused about, but I think it will be worth exploring carbs a bit more in possibly a future episode. I haven't talked about glucose, which is the saccharide that our bodies need for muscle and brain energy. Almost every cell in our bodies can metabolize glucose. Therefore, this is the most important and necessary simple sugar that we need. I'd love to jump in here and add that although glucose is required for our bodies to function properly, there is a process called gluconeogenesis that allows our bodies to create glucose when needed from amino acids, meaning we don't actually need as many carbs or sugars as people like to think. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. So, uh, so to recap the process behind conversion of usable carbohydrates into fuel for our bodies. Sucrose is what we recognize as table sugar, and when it is consumed, it splits into glucose and fructose. Glucose, we know, is used for energy, as Rachel pointed out. But what about the fructose? And here's where it gets kind of interesting, because when all the glucose is used up for energy, our bodies dig into fructose. But any fructose that is not used is immediately stored as fat. I love that last point, Jerome. It is so easy, actually too easy, for our bodies to convert excess sugar and carbs into body fat. I read an interesting scientific review titled, The Dose Makes the Poison, Sugar and Obesity in the United States. Now, this article stated that over the past 30 years, the calories from fat in people's diets has gone down, but obesity rates continue to climb. Evidence suggests that the diets high in added sugar promote the development of obesity, not diets high in dietary fat. Um, however, the impact of sugar consumption on weight gain and body fat accumulation still remains somehow controversial. This article went on to show multiple studies that highlight increased added sugar consumption with higher levels of obesity. Now, I'm specifying added sugar here because I think it's really important to understand that the way we consume sugar changes the way our body can process it. I hear all the time from clients, oh, I'm not eating bananas anymore because they're so high in sugar, which on the surface is true. Bananas are sweet and contain sucrose, fructose, and glucose. But the banana, because of its fiber and the fact that it's a whole food, is processed in our bodies so much differently than, say, a chocolate chip cookie. The vitamins, minerals, and fiber in real food, like fruits, slows down the absorption of those sugar molecules, which are naturally occurring in those foods. And that's opposed to the added sugars, like our cookies or baked goods, which are devoid of any real nutritional value. Yeah, another excellent point, Rachel. We talk about this single compound called sugar, but it must be taken into context with the other components of plant material. So I'll state one more time that sucrose is a simple compound made up of one molecule of glucose and one molecule of fructose. And when you consume table sugar, only half of this carbohydrate is used by your body 
and that's the glucose. The other half, don't forget, is the fructose, which is generally not needed, so it becomes stored fat. At the start of our discussion, I mentioned HFCs, which is high fructose corn syrup. It is the number one sweetener used in all processed foods. So the bad news for those of you who eat prepared uh, foods, junk snacks, soft drinks, energy drinks, some of the foods Rachel mentioned earlier, or anything that has HFCs in the ingredients list is that you are simply putting fructose fat into the place where muscles should live. And keep in mind that glucose is converted in the liver via the small intestine into glycogen. Glycogen acts as two forms of energy in the body. One form is used for quick usable energy, and the second form is stored in adipose tissue for long-term energy needs. With all this information, I'm sure people are listening and thinking, yeek, okay, I do need to eat less sugar. That is usually the response I get once people realize how easy it is to store excess sugar as fat in our bodies and how highly addictive it is. A little bit of advice here. Sugar becomes a lot easier to avoid when we are eating a real whole food diet. I, earlier in this episode, listed off about half, maybe less, of the sneaky names we have for sugar. Now, maybe you're trying to write them down or listen again and again to memorize that list. Um, A lot easier than that, though, is just eating real food. There's no nutrition label on a head of broccoli or a bag of potatoes because what you see is what you get. Your first line of defense in reducing sugar intake needs to be eating more real whole foods without nutrition labels or ingredient lists for you to go crazy over reading and deciphering. A general rule I like to follow for myself, not all the time, but as often as I can. When I'm thinking about buying something prepackaged, I look at the label because I always do that before I buy anything. And if I can't pronounce or identify most of the ingredients, then I just know that food's not for me. Rachel, I absolutely agree that people should get into the habit of reading labels. It's pretty amazing what gets hidden in the food. And without reading the labels, you might never know what may be hiding. I recently read an interesting article by uh, Megan uh, Gilmore. And she's the author of No Excuses Detox, that sugar, both table sugar and HFCs, contribute to chronic inflammation and a higher likelihood of depression. The negative effects of sugar seem to be limitless. It's hard to even know where to start. Um, First, let's start with how addictive it is. So when we eat large amounts of sugar, the reward center of our brain turns on, pumping out high levels of dopamine. Then we crave more sugar to feel that same feeling. And here lies the origin of comfort food. Unfortunately, though, because we know that way of eating isn't healthy, it's often accompanied by guilt and shame around eating those foods. Sugar will also affect our insulin levels. Initially, eating large amounts of sugar will cause our bodies to pump out loads of insulin to control our blood sugar levels. Then our blood sugar essentially crashes, which has terrible effects on our mood and brain health, leading to further feelings of anxiety and depression. Now, when we talk about inflammation, which sugar is a huge culprit of causing, inflammation can lead to some of the same problems around anxiety and depression, especially if you are dealing with chronic inflammation, which causes chronic pain. 
Weaning yourself off of sugar can feel incredibly daunting. It seems to be everywhere in everything and dictating most of our social interactions. Think drinks with coworkers, donuts in the break room, cake for someone's birthday. Uh, My main nutrition coaching is through the Whole30, which is a 30-day elimination diet of a lot of things, most notably sugar in all of its forms. Now, if you've never tried to totally remove added sugar from your diet, find a way to try it and allow yourself to feel uh, a different way of feeling around food. Oh, so true, Rachel, regarding the addictive qualities of, of sugar, particularly refined sugar and the hidden sugars in processed food that you mentioned. I think it's important to talk a bit about carbohydrates and exercise, as well as sugar and diabetes. So let's keep in mind our points about glycogen. It is a multi-branched polymer of glucose. As we have already mentioned, glucose is necessary for energy use by your body, and the release of useful glycogen is regulated by the liver and the pancreas. Uh, the pancreas responds to high levels of sugar by releasing insulin, and this is the management tool that your body uses to maintain a safe level of blood sugar. But this system can be overwhelmed by excessive sugar intake over a period of time. And inability to create sufficient insulin leads to stages of diabetes. Exercise is a great way to reduce blood glucose levels and use up stored glycogen in muscle tissue. As your muscles use up stored energy and seek to replenish, they will draw blood from uh, blood sugar and thereby reduce overall blood pressure levels. This is known as osmotic pressure on cell walls, which includes the blood-brain barrier, veins, and arteries. Diabetes is such an important condition to talk about when we discuss sugar. Now, I want to make sure that we differentiate here. Type 1 diabetes, in its briefest description, is when the pancreas just stops working. The cause of this is unknown, but it cannot be controlled or fixed by diet. Type 1 diabetes is diagnosed in about 1.6 million Americans each year, and that is less than 1% of the country's population. Now, more prevalent to our discussion is type 2 diabetes. Now we're talking about approximately 34 million Americans or 13% of the U.S. population. I guess the good thing here, and I'm using air quotes around the word good, Um, about type 2 diabetes is that with proper diet and exercise, it is completely controllable and oftentimes reversible. I'll keep my points brief here, but every time we eat, our pancreas secretes insulin. It's insulin's job to keep our blood sugar at a safe level. When we are eating high-carb or high-sugar diets, our bodies are required to pump out a lot of insulin. Over time, this results in two problems. First, to Jerome's point, the body stops producing as much insulin. It basically just burns out. And the other thing that happens is that our insulin receptor sites stop reacting to insulin. And this is actually usually what happens first. We eat a piece of cake, which requires high amounts of insulin. Then we follow up with ice cream, more insulin, maybe some jelly beans, more insulin. Eventually, there's so much insulin floating around the receptor sites, they just can't keep up. This is known as insulin resistance, and it is often diagnosed as a precursor to type 2 diabetes. Um, And the pancreas just can't keep up with that. And the number one risk factor for type 2 diabetes is obesity. And to my earlier point, high sugar consumption has been shown to correlate 
with obesity. So where does that leave us? Um, Never eat sugar again? Well, that's easier said than done. We live in a world where highly processed, sugary foods are always readily available. My advice, again, is eat real whole foods as much as possible. If you can, bake at home. Uh, I use some sugar alternatives such as date sugar, coconut sugar, honey, or maple syrup. And when you do choose to indulge, make sure it's occasionally, not often. I tell my clients that all the time. What you do often is what matters the most. Rachel, I love the alternative sweetener options you provide. I did mention at the opening that we would offer some suggestions. So let me just add a few that I use in addition to what you mentioned. I use fruit juices as a sweetener. There's also brown rice syrup, agave nectar, and simple purees and reductions. And I made one yesterday from golden beets and organic pears. It was a perfect topping for a dark berry and chia pudding that I made for my wife. So, Rachel, before we close, I want to mention a good read that goes right to your point on sugar craving and addiction. And that is a book I recently uh, that was recently published by Pulitzer Prize winning author Michael Haas titled Hooked. Haas talks in great detail about the extreme lengths companies take to re-engineer our brains to accept and eventually become addicted to highly processed foods and most specifically sugar. There is some great science Michael Haas examines in his work, and it is definitely worth reading. Folks, this brings us to the end of our discussion on sugar, and we hope everyone listening has picked up some sweet knowledge on this topic. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of Modern Food Thinking with Chef Jerome Kicka and Rachel Lucas and edited by Jeremy Nessel. Our next episode will air in two weeks, so please join us then. You can listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, through the free app for iOS and Android, or wherever you get your podcasts. To sign up for Rachel's private coaching sessions, visit her website at fueling-strong.com. To sign up for private group or general cooking classes with me, visit chef jerome.com This is Jerome Pekka. And this is Rachel Lucas. From both of us, we hope you stay well, eat well, and be well. 